0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It is uh, very good to be with you this evening, Christ Church. You are our closest gospel-preaching neighbors in downtown Albuquerque, and so that is a joy to be here. Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer, and I will be opening our prayer in Luke chapter 2. So join with me as we go to the Lord. Father, your word says this, that in you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Father, we come to you this evening because of your Son who is the Son most high, the one who has made a way for the forgiveness of sins, the one who is the expression of your tender mercy toward us. Father, we pray that tonight you would allow light to shine into the dark areas of our hearts. That you would allow the light of the gospel to awaken dead and lifeless souls. That you would give us eyes to see sin that resides In the shadows of our hearts, would you give us feet that go into the pathway of peace? So, Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this church, the time that we can gather together. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Once there was a man who made a name for himself by persecuting Christians. Early in his career, he had a resume that far surpassed that of his co-workers. His birth had set him apart into the religious upper class of society. His Ivy League-esque education paved the way for a noble and lucrative religious career. And his moral righteousness and religious zeal for God set him apart from his peers. One day, this man was traveling to a nearby city in order to add to his tally of persecution, and a great light shone from heaven and stopped this man in his tracks. The grace of God appeared from the heavens and surrounded this man. Appearing in the light was the resurrected Jesus himself. This man would report that the appearing light physically blinded his eyes, and yet for the first time, the eyes of his heart could see clearly who he was before this man, Jesus. This is the event that I imagine the Apostle Paul reflecting upon as he's writing this letter to his young protege, Titus. It's this appearing of the grace of God in his own life that I imagine sets the stage for what he writes here in this letter to Titus. Paul is sending Titus on a mission of monumental importance and a mission to plant healthy churches in the broken cities of an island called Crete. This is the letter that we began our year with at Center City Church to help reshape the vision of our church for downtown ministry here in Albuquerque. Paul's mission to Titus is very much what I feel like our mission at Center City Church and what I hear your mission at Christ Church is as well, is to plant healthy churches in broken cities. Paul charges Titus, his true child and a common faith as he calls him, to put what remains in these churches into order is what he says in chapter 1 verse 5. The first charge to Titus is to appoint healthy elders in the church, to rid the church of false teachers. But then he goes on in chapter 2 talking about what it looks like to have healthy relationships in healthy churches. That there's discipleship that is cross-generational, older men discipling younger men and older women discipling younger women, that there is discipleship that happens across many layers of the fabric of the social society in those cities, what it looks like to be a slave and what it looks like to be a free man or woman. This is a letter that is perhaps more focused on the topic of good works than any other of Paul's letters. And yet, in case we are inclined to think that maybe Paul is moving back into some element of self-righteousness, we get the heart of the letter in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Perhaps one of even the most succinct summations of the gospel anywhere in the Apostle Paul's writings. So if you have your Bibles this evening and they're not already open, open them up to Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. If you are new to your Bibles, you will probably start in the back cover and begin to work your way left There is a wonderful collection of books that all begin with the letter T. And Titus is the shortest. So if you are new to your Bibles, that is how you will find this letter called Titus. Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. Follow along with me if you will. It says that the grace of God has appeared. This is the overriding sentence in this entire paragraph That the grace of God has appeared. Paul's going to describe this appearing in three different ways. The appearing of the grace of God is a saving grace. It is a training grace. And it is a waiting grace. It's a saving grace, a training grace, and a waiting grace. Let's look first at the saving grace that has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul loves this word salvation in this particular letter. He uses it all over the place to describe the work of God. In fact, he uses it just previously in chapter 2, verse 10. He says that in everything that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In fact, he's even going to use it in our passage just a little bit later in verse 13. We're going to wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here he's saying that when the grace of God appears, it brings salvation. What does it mean that the grace of God brings salvation? Well, I think his other reference in this passage gives us an idea of what he's getting at when he says that it brings salvation. Look at verse 14. This saving one, this savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. There was a custom in the Greco-Roman culture of how a slave person became free. A slave would send his money to the temple and the temple would kind of act as the treasury or as this middle man, if you will. Others could even donate money on behalf of a particular slave. And when enough money was raised to buy the slave's freedom, the temple would pay the slave holder or the slave owner In order to symbolize that the god or goddess of that temple has paid the price or has redeemed that slave out of slavery and into freedom. I think Paul hits at some of that imagery as he uses this word redeemed. But it's not a god or a goddess of the Greco-Roman culture. It's not a God or goddess of a temple, but it's the God of the world that has given his only son to buy you and I from lawlessness. To free us from our own sin. To purify us as his own people. But what does it mean that the grace of God has brought salvation for all people? Well, it doesn't mean that the grace of God saves all people. We're not universalists. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be preaching here, right, Nathan? We're not universalists. It doesn't even mean that the grace of God appears in the exact same way to all men. But what it does mean, Paul has just written about a number of different types of people that make up the cities in Crete. You see, the cities of Crete were very multicultural cities because they were port cities on this small island. And so there were all sorts of people that made their way to Crete. Paul has just talked about there being old men and young men and old women and young women and servants and slaves and free people. That the grace of God, the salvation that comes, comes to all people, regardless of your gender, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of the amount of money in your bank account, regardless of whether you go home tonight or whether you sleep on the streets tonight. The grace of God brings salvation to all people. It crosses all lines and all barriers. It is what we see in Revelation when we see a people redeemed from every tribe and every tongue and every language around the throne of God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't only save good people. In fact, he doesn't save good people at all. He only saves lawless people. And that is good news for you and me. I would ask you this evening, have you ever come to a saving understanding of the grace of God in your life? Have you ever come to a place where you stop relying on your own religious works, your own self-righteousness, trust in the saving work of Christ? Have you come to a place where you're at the end of your rope, Tired of trying things your own way. Coming to a redeeming and loving and saving God. Well, if you haven't, today is the day. Today is the day to repent of your sin. To come to Christ in faith. And he will save you. He will redeem you. But I think that that saving grace that appeared to Paul... Not only comes to us and appears to us, but we are also the means of that appearing of the grace of God in the lives of others. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, how will they hear unless someone tells them? Who's going to go? How beautiful are the feet of those that go and share good news I want you to take just a minute and look at your feet. Go ahead. Look at your feet. Whether they are shoes or uh, they have shoes on them or not, look at your feet. Now look at your neighbor's feet. You have beautiful feet. You're welcome, Nathan. <laughs> now turn and tell your neighbor you have beautiful feet. If nobody told you you have beautiful feet and you are sitting next to others, you might be a little concerned. Your feet are the beautiful feet that God is sending. To use so that the grace of God may appear in the lives of others. That wherever God has you, whether that's at the university, whether that's at Sandia, whether that's on the street or at Steel Bridge, whether that's at your home with your children, wherever God has you, he has given you beautiful feet to go and take the gospel So that when it is proclaimed, even in its most simplest of forms, God appears, awakening dead souls and bringing them to life just like he did for the Apostle Paul. But not only is the grace of God a saving grace, the grace of God is a training grace as well. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 12. That the grace of God has appeared, not only bringing salvation for all people, but training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. The letter to Titus is very much a letter about teaching and instruction and training. And there's all sorts of words that are used to describe the kind of teaching and training that should happen in churches. Paul uses words to describe kind of didactic types of training or more classroom types of training. But the word here is a little bit different. It's not so much an academic type of training as it is a a modeling and instructing type of training. This afternoon I spent about an hour and a half watching my seven-year-old son at baseball practice. Young kids are not naturally good at baseball. In fact, they're quite awful at it. I never realized, having grown up playing baseball now and baseball being a part of my life for years, how complicated of a game baseball is until I've tried to explain it to my seven-year-old. Now, there's some of you in here that love baseball, and you get it, you understand it, you've been playing it for a while, and there's other of you that just hate it. I don't find many people that are in the middle ground of baseball. It's either the greatest game you've ever watched and played, or it's the most boring game that you've ever watched and played. It only gets worse when there's seven-year-olds. I... (laughs) I, I watched the other day at one of the games, the machine threw an immaculate inning, which is nine pitches and three strikeouts. It's the shortest amount of pitches that can be thrown and strike out every single batter. I was watching practice today and we were working on ground balls. And if I had a dollar for every time that ball rolled between the legs of those seven-year-olds, I would be a rich man. And yet, there's something unnatural about putting your face closer to a hard ball that is quickly and rapidly making its way towards you. Our natural instinct is to back away from the ball as it's coming towards you. It might hit a rock, it might bounce up, it might hit you in the face. But to go closer to the ball, to put your face closer to something that could bruise your eye or your nose, isn't what we naturally do. And as Christians, we don't naturally renounce ungodliness. We don't naturally pursue godliness. I think there's a natural growth that happens in the Christian's life. And yet, there needs to be training along the way. Paul tells Titus that the grace of God isn't only what saves us. It's that same grace that trains us day in and day out in the Christian life. And there's two things that it does as it's training us. The first is that it teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I think we are probably quick to imagine ungodliness as things like it's described in Romans chapter 1. Things like lying or boasting, envy, gossiping, disobedience to parents. But Paul also uses this word in his letter to Timothy to describe religious people as well. To describe false teachers who are coming in and leading people in the church to ungodliness. Ungodliness is not just something for people outside the church. It's not just heathens that are prone to ungodliness. You and I are prone to ungodliness. We are prone to pursuing Christ with wrong motives. We are prone to the same anger, the same envy, the same boasting that our unbelieving friends are prone to. We are prone to gathering together even on Sundays only for the external benefits of what religion has to offer. We are prone to babbling with our words in prayer. Instead of coming to Christ with a humble and sincere heart. But it's not just about renouncing ungodliness. Paul also says that we need to be trained in how to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Elsewhere, Paul uses the language of clothing to describe this kind of renouncing and pursuing in our lives. This idea that as Christians, we are called to both put things off and put things on in our walk in the Christian life. It's very much the imagery of clothing, the way we might take off some dirty clothes and put on clean clothes. As a good southern Christian boy growing up in North Carolina, my first job was at Chick-fil-A. I worked my way up the food chain, up the ladder, all the way to where I got to be the cow that would dress up and go to the elementary schools. And I remember at that time I was dating, who is now my wife, and we were, started dating then in high school. And I would always um, come back from, from Chick-fil-A and maybe go to her parents' house or she would meet me at my house or my parents' house, whatever the case. And there was this very distinct smell that I would come away with from, from work. Are there any, any Chick-fil-A fans? I am craving some Chick-fil-A now and I hate that it is Sunday because I crave it more. It's, you know it's a good restaurant when you can work there for four years out of your life and still long for the food. But I would come home, and every time I go there, I smell this smell. It's so distinct. I would come to her parents' house or my parents' house, and I would always smell like a combination of sweat and pickles. That's why I get my sandwiches with no pickles now. Sweat and pickles. And, and Jen, my, my girlfriend, my wife now, She would never, never, never let me give her a hug when I had my Chick-fil-A uniform after a day at work. The smell was just, it was too much, too strong, too nasty. And yet, I would go change, I would go take a shower, I'd go put on some clean, fresh clothes, and all the smell was gone. And it was clean. And it was fresh. And that's what Paul is talking about. That we are to pursue in this training. That we are to rid ourselves of the sweaty, pickle-smelling clothes in our lives. And go into the drawers of God's grace. And clothe ourselves. That's why he does say, after all, that God is the one who is purifying for himself a people... For his own possession. He's not just redeeming you, he's purifying you. But we need training. We don't naturally know how to forgive, but we do know naturally how to be bitter. No one has to train us in bitterness. We naturally put down those roots in our heart, but forgiveness has to be trained. We don't naturally pursue obedience. Anyone with kids knows that disobedience comes far more naturally than obedience in our lives. We don't naturally know self-control, but no one's ever taught me how to be angry or how to be jealous or how to be envious of somebody else. But we must be training one another in these clothes of Christ's righteousness, forgiveness, obedience, self-control. A.W. Tozer says that as Christians, we are very much aware of the gifts that are ours in salvation we're very much aware of the forgiveness and the freedom that comes in salvation and we're also very much aware of what awaits us in heaven we talk about the streets of gold we talk about the day where there's no more death and no more pain and no more tears And yet he says that one of the greatest sorrows in a Christian's life is that we never come to grips with the gifts of God's grace that are here for us in the present age. Forgiveness, obedience, self-control, mercy, gentleness, these fruits of the Spirit are not just awaiting us in heaven, but they are meant to be lived out here in this earth. What is it in your life that needs to be renounced? And what is it that needs to be pursued? Maybe there's a practice or a habit in your life that needs to be put away. A practice or a habit that has remained longer than it should. Maybe there's bitterness that has put roots in your heart that have gone far deeper than you've realized. Maybe there's anger that you've been battling, or maybe an affair, or maybe, maybe just religiosity. What is it that needs to be renounced, and what needs to be pursued? But not only is this grace a saving grace, and a growing grace, or a training grace, but it is a waiting grace. Paul goes on in verse 13. The grace of God has appeared, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that there is a second appearing of the grace of God here. The grace of God that appeared at the beginning is now appearing again towards the end of this passage. And we are to await that appearing. There's a couple different types of waiting. I was thinking about this some this week and sometimes I wait very passively. This might be the type of waiting when I'm waiting in line at Zendo for my coffee to be made. And when I'm waiting passively. My phone is normally out. I'm checking emails or checking my fantasy baseball team or seeing if there's anything new on Instagram or whatever the case, but I'm really just blowing some time so that people think I'm important by being on my phone while I'm waiting for the coffee or the tea to be made. It's the kind of waiting that we would do at a doctor's office where we're waiting for our name to be called and we grab a magazine and Browse through, looking for an article to read. But that's passive waiting. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. But there's also an active type of waiting. I saw this on display in our home this week. We were having some some friends over to our house and... Our kids get very, very excited anytime somebody comes over to our home. And we were about probably 30 minutes out from this family actually arriving to our home. And our kids are perched by the window looking for them to come. And it's like, all right, kids, you got 30 minutes. Why don't you find something to do? So they go, and they go into their closets. And in their closets, they have... They're full of costumes. We go the day after Halloween and we get a bunch of costumes that are marked down. So they go into their closets and they're trying to figure out which costume they're going to wear to the party that we're having that night, even though it's not a costume party, but every party is for them. And so they're putting on their clothes of what they're going to wear and then they go back and they run to, the, run to the window and look and no, they're not here yet. And so then they go and they get their toys out. And they're figuring out which toys they're going to play with with the kids. And they're talking about, okay, which kids are coming over? What do they like? How old are they? Which kind of toys are we going to play with? And then they run back to the window and they're looking out. And it's like, no, they're not here yet. you still got 10 minutes. So then they go back into the room and they hold a meeting about which games they might be playing when they're here. And it's back and forth, back and forth. But they're always preparing for the arrival of our guest. I think that's far better picture of what Paul is talking about here. That you and I, as we await the return of Christ, as we await the second appearing of our Savior, that we are not to do that passively as Christians. But we are to be active as we wait. Notice what he goes on to say for why he redeemed us and why he's purifying us. It's so that we would be zealous for good works. That's not passive language. That's active language. Even what he goes on in verse 15 to say that we should be exhorting and rebuking and declaring these things to one another. Church, we are meant to be active as we await the second appearing of the grace of God in our lives. We are not to just gather one day out of the week and check the box and be done with church. But you and I are called to lives of mission. The very mission of God to redeem a people for himself, to purify people for himself. We are part of that mission. I believe that God has placed us in a very strategic location in our city, an area, a community in our city that would be great to see the grace of God appearing, would great be great to see the light of the gospel shine bright and shine forth in the downtown community of our city. I often ask our church when you think of downtown Albuquerque what are the first things that come to your mind? Maybe poverty, or corruption, maybe unknown of what one mayor wants to do in the city versus what another mayor wants to do, maybe protests. Who knows? Depending upon how long you've lived in Albuquerque, you probably have a different perspective of what downtown Albuquerque is and yet so much time so much money so much effort is being put by our city into this particular community we must not waste our time just by gathering together but we must go we must be zealous for the good works that the gospel produces in our lives and as the world, as the city that God has strategically placed our two churches in, the light of that gospel shines clearer every single day for the community, the watching world around us. There is a lady in the scriptures called Anna. Anna was married at a young age, and for seven years, she and her husband lived, by all accounts, a very happy, enjoyable, successful life. And yet, in their seventh year of marriage, Anna's husband dies. It's not what she planned for. It's not the way she imagined her life going. Not knowing what she was going to do, now that her husband was gone, she devotes her life to serving God in the temple. And for 60 years, her biographer writes that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping, fasting, praying night and day, and waiting for the appearance of the Redeemer. And then one day, one day that probably started out like every other day for Anna. She overhears an old man in the temple taking a baby into his arms, blessing him and calling him the salvation that God has prepared for all peoples. And it was in this child that we know as Jesus That the grace of God appeared before Anna's eyes. The very grace of God bound up into an infant that she had been awaiting for 60 years appeared before her eyes. And in Luke chapter 2 verse 38 it says, She gave thanks to God and spoke about him to all the others who were waiting for the redemption of the city? It's my prayer that God would raise up many like Anna in this church. Many who wait for the appearing of the grace of God. Many who go and tell others about the, the appearance of the grace of God. We're even going to take time to give thanks to God for that appearance. In our lives, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to gather together, to hear from you through your word today. Would you use your word to motivate us, to call us, to send us, to comfort us, to heal us? And Father, as we come to the table this evening, Would this just be an expression of our thanks to you for that grace of God that has appeared? And would it be an expression of our active, waiting hearts as we long for the time when that grace of God will appear again? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.